0: Hello and welcome to this special JustCast series about the upcoming Reclosure 2021 conference. We're going to have a brief conversation with our speakers, asking them some questions about their life and work to get to know them better. I'm Renzo.
1: And I'm Pavel.
0: We are your hosts for today, and it is a great honor for us to be joined by one of our keynote speakers, Stephen Wolfram. Steven, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. How are you today?
2: I'm just fine today.
1: That's, that's good to hear. And um, before we begin with the actual questions, um, let me try to do the impossible and summarize Steven's contributions in one or two sentences. Um, Stephen Wolfram, as many of you will know, is a computer scientist and a physicist. He's the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research where he designed uh, mathematica and wolfram alpha steven's prolific writer and speaker recently on a renewed quest to find the fundamental theory of physics
2: that's good that's 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 a good start it's uh 60 something years of, uh, of stuff <laughs> well <laughs> the...
0: and steven is connected to our conference in at least two important ways um, Reclosure is driving theme this year is data science so that's one but Steven is also the designer of the Wolfram language which is inspired by Lisp in being symbolic and functional so we definitely have some common interests we think now it's difficult to find something about yourself Stephen, that is not already in the public domain So let me start by exploring one important aspect of your life, which is probably not well known, which is what is your favorite pizza topping?
2: Wow. Okay. Interesting. Well, my my typical strategy, so presented with a list of possible pizzas, Mm -hmm. my first thing to do is to assume that the designers knew what they were doing and pick the default. (laughs) Absent that, It's uh, read what's there and I spend my life making decisions and judgment calls, you know, designing a computational language for for 40 years, you end up spending a lot of time making judgment calls. So I suppose my next strategy is read the menu quickly and uh, try and make a quick decision. But I don't think I can can say it. it. It depends on circumstances.
1: I will, I will maybe just uh, take it into a little bit more uh, serious direction as well. So it's just, you know, like every interview, I think the question of origins is, is kind of important. So for us, especially, it's important to know how did you get into computing and how did you get into computers and um, what is that exciting uh, in technology and software for you in general and nowadays as well?
2: Well, you know, I, I first saw a computer when I was 10 years old, which was around 1970. Mm-hmm. I first used a computer around 1972. It was a, a big thing the size of a desk, you know, with core memory, 18-bit words programmed in a Sunday language. My first big motivation for using computers was that I got interested in physics when I was pretty young, and uh, I had this kind of goal of uh, doing things like simulating Various kinds of physical systems on a computer. The computer I had access to was was super primitive for doing that, and mm. actually that led me to invent a bunch of things which I only really figured out the significance of many many years later. But uh, so my first experiences were writing writing programs that ran on paper tapes and things like that. Mm. Then um, then I got uh, in doing physics. One of the big things one has to do is lots of mathematical calculation. And I wasn't keen on doing sort of the mechanical sides of that myself. And so I started exploring, could I use a computer to do that? And people have built kind of uh, research type systems for doing that. I started using those. And then sort of fatefully in 1979, I just got my physics PhD, actually, and um, uh, was um, still still young enough to be energetic. I was like 20 years old. And um, the um, I kind of... Uh, was like, okay, there are all these tools that exist for doing mathematical computation automatically, and they're not sort of big and strong enough to do the kinds of things that I want to do in physics. Uh, How do we get to version two, so to speak? Mm -hmm. And after trying to convince the people who built those existing systems to do it, uh, I was like, the good solution is if you can't get other people to do it, do it yourself. And that led me uh, to, um, actually amusing piece of micro history. So, so to speak, the the person who was then a graduate student of physics at Caltech, where I was, um, the, uh, a chap called Rob Pike convinced me, he said, mm-hmm. C is the language of the future. And that's what, if you're going to implement a big system, C is the language to use. So, so we did. Um, and, uh, then I started building this thing called SMP symbolic manipulation program, which was my first really big computer system. And, uh, to build that, my main sort of idea was I want to have a language that can express the kinds of things that we need for mathematical computation and for lots of other kinds of things. What is the what is the right foundation for expressing computation in a way that people can use it? And that led me on a long path of studying mathematical logic and a lot of sort of foundational questions about computation uh, led me to this kind of Um, model for SMP, which was a model of having symbolic expressions transformed with patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, That was in SMP. I tried out a lot of kind of wild, radical ideas for language design, some of which worked out great, some of which did not work out, and some of which actually would have worked out if they'd been slightly different, but it took me decades to recover from having designed them not quite right in SMP. Um, But uh, then... That led me, that that effort with SMP, that was my first kind of uh, both large computer system and commercial computer system. Um, and uh, then that, uh, I went back to doing basic science and got interested in the question of sort of extending the domain of, of models and science from the kind of thing that people have been doing for like 300 years of, of saying, you know, we, we write down a mathematical equation to represent what happens in the world. The idea that I got Interested in was what if we have more general kinds of programs more general kinds of rules that can be represented by programs? And so that got me on the whole path of exploring what do simple programs typically do? I studied a lot cellular automata and um, that led me to a sort of different understanding of what computation actually is. And Mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, you know, this is is a long trajectory from there. But the (laughs) beginning of of Wolfram language um, was 1986. Um, I kind of took what I'd learned from SMP and um, uh, sort of said, okay, how can I build a a more general, more modern, uh, for the ages type of system? And my original goal, uh, as I say, the the system is based on symbolic expressions. Symbolic expressions, I didn't realize what a good idea symbolic expressions actually were. What, over the years, you know, I thought, okay, we can represent things like mathematics that way, we can represent programs that way, but we can represent everything that way, whether it's user interfaces, documents, running processes, uh, you know, all or, or entities in the actual world, in the, in the in the actual real world, so to speak, like cities or movies or, you know, orbits of planets or whatever else. And so that whole process sort of has taken me on this now, well, we just celebrated the, the one third century mark for Mathematica and Wolfram language. Um, and uh, the, the sort of the big trajectory has been building what I would call a full scale computational language, not mm-hmm. just a language to represent, you know, programs that computers can run intrinsically, but to represent things in the world computationally. And that's been kind of the, that's been the, the, the long time mission, so to speak.
0: Do you have a computer science hero uh that would you have lunch or drinks with, and if they're not with us anymore because that could be the case, is there anything you regret not asking them
2: well you know i i, I had a principle for a while of of meeting everybody who had uh, developed and designed a major programming language and mm-hmm. um i was uh, uh, I had met lots of those people um and uh, I had thought maybe we should have this big conference and collect everybody together. And then I realized that's a profoundly bad idea. Everybody's gonna be speaking their own language and nobody will understand mm-hmm. anything anybody else says. But um, uh, in any case, the, um, uh, I would say in terms of the history of computing, um, I, you know, I, I recapitulated many things that Alan Turing was interested in. I think I sort of feel like I distantly know Alan Turing fairly well but I'd be curious to to know if I'm right in my theories about why Alan Turing thought this or that. Another person I would be uh, very curious to know what the true story was with them is a person called Moses Schoenfinkel, who's the person who invented combinators, which were actually the first kind of uh, uh, real formal representation of universal computation invented in 1920. And I've tried to track down in great detail the history of Moses Schoenfinkel, who's a rather obscure figure, and there's, there's much we don't know, and I'd be most curious to ask him. I mean, it's also kind of an irony that with combinators, so much of what was done with combinators, we now, I, I've certainly made use of, in, in our symbolic language, I suspect you can trace things in closure to, to, to sort of combinator-type ideas. There's one idea, though, that is just a little bit beyond what, what any of us do, which is no names. It's kind of a, a language without nouns. It's yeah. uh, everything is just s's and k's, and you're, you're just defining the plumbing, but there is nothing, There's you're not saying what goes into the plumbing.
0: Isn't that like similar to lambda calculus then?
2: No, lambda calculus has named variables. La- mm. Lambda calculus was, a, was the fact that Alonzo Church knew that lambda calculus was going to work was because he could translate it into combinators. But in mm. lambda calculus, you have named variables, and that's you know, I'm sure you run into this Any language design runs into this: of you know, what do you do with the names, which don't really mean anything, but somehow there's an X and there's another X and another scope, and how do those Xs relate to each other, and so on? This is a a complicated story, and it wasn't at all obvious that that was an untangleable story. The only way that Church knew that it was an untangleable story was that he could convert lambda calculus to combinators, and in combinators there is no such issue because there simply are no names. The problem with there being no names is that we humans are pretty big on having words and naming things and so on. And in a world without words, without nouns, it's really hard for us humans to keep track of what's going on. So mm-hmm. I'd be curious to know whether whether Moses Schoenfinkel was, uh, you know, he, he I, I, I've tracked down a great deal about his history. And there's a lot we, we just don't know about it. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious to know the original, most abstract language designer, how did he
0: think about stuff very interesting
1: if i can ask one question about what you said just before that you didn't realize initially um how good um the symbolic ex- expressions are going to turn out how how well they're going to work for such a broad uh, spectrum of things um so my question is uh how did you come up with the, you know that uh, that idea to base the language on that specific right. way of thinking so,
2: so what happened was I was, you know, it turns out mathematics is a good first use case because it actually has quite a lot of structure. Um, but what I did was to say, what's the generalization of that? Then I looked back at things like lambda calculus and, uh, and post-production systems and combinators and so on, all these different fundamental models of computation. I said, what what is really going on in those fundamental models of computation? It's you have a structure and you have transformations on that structure. Now, the thing that is not obvious is that that's a good human way to represent things. It could be that it it grinds everything down just like combinators, and you end up with something which is very pure and very perfect, but useless to us humans. Mm -hmm. So the thing that is the interesting thing is that symbolic expressions seem to be, as I can tell, the best bridge between what's actually real in the world, you know, actual things in physics or biology or whatever else, and the kinds of things that we can think about abstractly in computation. Now, I will say that what I've realized actually just in the last year probably is how lucky I was to not understand more at the time when I was first building SMP and and later building Wolfram Language about particularly uh, certain kinds of processes of evaluation. Here's the point. So in in Wolfram Language, you're, you're always applying transformation rules to symbolic expressions and the basic operation of the language is you keep applying transformation rules until you reach a fixed point. And that's the answer that you give to the to the human user. Okay. So the issue with that is, so, so when I first was designing SMP, theoretical computer scientists would say to me, you know, just think about x equals x plus one. Your language can't possibly work. It's just going to blow up. X equals x plus one is going to loop forever, and and it's all going to blow up. The interesting thing is, yes, x equals x plus one loops forever, but it turns out it doesn't matter because it mm-hmm. turns out that the things that we humans care about don't fall into that little trap of x equals x plus one. So the other thing is, when you think about an evaluation path, uh, what we're doing is we're always following the first transformation that applies. And that's not the only thing you can do. In fact, what I realized in recent times is that our whole universe doesn't do that. Our whole universe uses what I call multi-way systems where basically you're following all possible transformations. Sometimes that leads to branches in history Sometimes you can get equivalent results and there's a merge in those branches. That's in fact the origin of quantum mechanics, it turns out, is that mm-hmm. that merging, that branching and merging of histories. And so this, this process of evaluation, evaluation is like following a particular history, but the full story is this whole multi-way graph of all possible histories, which is what quantum mechanics actually follows. And the thing that was not obvious when I was building SMP and later Wolfram language, is that following the first path is going to be useful. And, you know, there are evaluation orders which aren't useful. So for example, in our physical universe, we can think about what is the evaluation order of the physical universe. That converts into reference frames and relativity and the analog reference frames that we've kind of invented recently in quantum mechanics and so on. The reference frame defines kind of what's the order of evaluation for the universe which part of space is evaluated before or after what other part of space. And so that, that's um, the, the question of what reference frame is useful. A depth first evaluation reference frame for the universe is profoundly not useful because what happens in, in a breadth first evaluation for the universe, basically all places in space are being evaluated sort of together in that breadth first slice. And then you go on and evaluate the next moment in time everywhere in space. A depth-first evaluation would say, "I'm going to drill down at one place in space and get to the end, and then I'm going to go back and do the other parts of space." And in fact, things like that happen near black holes in general relativity. Um, and uh, uh, but they don't; they're not a very—that's not our common experience of space and time and, and things. So anyway, the thing that I sort of realised recently is I really dodged a bullet by by. By using this approach of saying we just follow the, the the single evaluation path, I could have said, "Oh my gosh, I'm you know let me worry about all possible evaluation paths." I, I in fact designed that in SMP. I designed a method of controlling the evaluation order, which was incomprehensible, frankly, to me and to everybody else. Um, and uh, uh, what I've now realized is that question is related to all these questions about how physics works and reference frames and general relativity and all kinds of other things. And it's not surprising it was hard. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's, I think, a, a fascinating challenge for, for programming languages and thinking about computation today. I think it's actually related to, uh, to your transducers and things like that. I suspect mm. transducers are a Lorentz transform of the standard evaluation process. But we'll have to see. I, I'll, I'll think about that a little bit more and see what I can do. Because <laughs> what's happening is there's this question, there's this trade-off between taking a thing and just keeping on evaluating it in time versus moving in space to another part of the data structure. And, mm-hmm. and that's um, that's kind of the the story of, of kind of how you trade off between space and time. That's kind of a story of relativity. And uh, the question of whether you know relativity, the fact that there is relativistic invariance is... Uh, the idea of confluence or eventual consistency in databases. This is kind of the same idea that you can pick a different reference frame, end up evaluating things in different orders, and always end up with the same answer. That, mm. that mm. turns out to be, in the end, in physics, the essence of relativity.
1: You just so, touched on it at the end there, like, but I was kind of wondering because you seem to be really good at creating those like um, positive feedback loops between those different um, different sort of. Uh, in, in, areas of, you know, thought between physics and and computation and so on. So I was thinking if there's, there's already something that's coming back from the physics project that's informing your design. Right.
2: Right. Well, so, so, you know, it's a funny thing because I've, I've kind of alternated between doing basic science Mm. and doing technology probably four or five times in my life so far. Um, And it's, it's really a very, it's a very wonderful loop because, you know, you do technology, you build tools that lets you do a bunch of basic science and sort of advanced intellectual things. And often I do that just for the purpose of advancing the science and intellectual things. But then it turns out that those yeah. make me realize there's another piece of technology that can be built. I mean, you know, yeah, of course. Wolfram Alpha was the result of, of the philosophical realization that there is no sort of bright line that separates the intelligent from the merely computational. And that was what kind of made me realize it should be possible if I believe my own Theoretical philosophy, so to speak, it should be possible to actually build both Malfa, which it turned out to be, but now you ask about the physics project. You know, in, in launching into the physics project, I mm-hmm. said finally this is a project where there's not going to be any kind of you know it's going to be two hundred years before there's an application of this stuff. Um, it's it's far far away. I gave analogies of you know Isaac Newton and the satellite launch company type thing. Mm-hmm. You know, just not not the right time. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, But I was wrong because it turns out that the formalism that we built for the physics project that all has to do with this thing I call multi-computation, this this whole idea of uh, doing multiple possible evaluations, multiple threads of history. Mm
0: -hmm. What you
2: have to understand is something like logic programming is about there are multiple threads of history, but you just Mm -hmm. want one of them. You just want to get the one that gets you to the goal you want. Mm -hmm. Same thing in theorem proving. In probabilistic programming, you're instead saying, "Let me look at all those threads of history, and let me, you know, let me look at the probability of what happens." But this general idea of multi-computation, which turns out to be the core of the physics project in the end, mm-hmm. the thing that gives you quantum mechanics, the thing that actually gives you this this very bizarre ultimate limit of physics and mathematics that I just wrote something about that I called the ruliad. The ruliad is a is a very bizarre object. The ruliad is the entangled history of all possible computations and the fact that that is a meaningful thing is fascinating and and ultimately very deep and it turns out that the our our the universe as we experience it is basically just a particular reference frame sampling this ruliard of all possible entangled computations and it turns out that that sort of the universe is made by the way that we observe the universe and within that same ruliard object is mathematics made by observing kind of these computational processes in a different way. So that's kind of the super abstract version of this. But the the thing that is more concrete is this idea of multi-computation. So so just to to tell a bit of a a, a slightly longer story about the history of science, there's a question of what is a theory in science? And there have been, I think, four basic epochs of the development of Mm -hmm. theories. One was in antiquity. People basically said, what is stuff made of? is stuff made of atoms, is stuff made of this, is stuff made of that. It was a structural kind of set of models for things. There wasn't really an notion of time. It was just like there are epicycles, they're sitting out there. It wasn't like the dynamics of what's going to happen next. Then you get to the 1600s and Galileo and Newton and so on and the introduction of mathematics and science. And then time enters, but time is just a coordinate, it's just a value, you slide up and down, you you say, I want the results at this time or that time. So then we get a lot further forward, 1980s, uh, actually my own efforts in, in sort of trying to understand how to make more general models than the kind that have been made with mathematics. The main idea was use programs as the way to make models of things. And the difference between a program and an equation is with a program you say, I write the program and then I just let it run and I see what it does. I don't get to slide time forwards. I don't get to say, okay, the mm-hmm. program is going to eventually do this. You know, that's kind of the halting problem story and so mm-hmm. on. That's um, uh, the only way you find out what the program does is to run the program and see what it does. And that's this phenomenon of computational irreducibility that I've talked about a lot. But that's kind of the third paradigm for doing science is you have a program, you let it run. Um, the fourth paradigm, which is the thing that I've sort of just realized as a result of our physics project, is this idea of multi-computation that instead of time being this kind of process of running a computation, there are actually many threads of time that correspond to the many different possible outcomes that some computation can have. And that Mm -hmm. means that the state of the world is not something that immediately exists in that system. The state has to be constructed by an observer because there are many threads of time and you have to be able to say which sampling of those threads of time do you actually care about as an observer? And so a physical observer with the characteristic that they say, I care about what happened in the universe now, all over space, for example. Or the logic programmer who says, I care about the winning path that was the thing that got me to the goal. Those are different observations of that kind of multi-computational thing. And the thing that I realized is that this multi-computation paradigm has implications for just a whole bunch of fields. I mean, it's, it's really a neat thing because general relativity and quantum mechanics, which turn out to be the same theory, are generic theories that emerge from multi-computation for certain kinds of observers. And so that means you can start playing that in all kinds of different fields. But in computation specifically, the the big idea there from this is how do we think about distributed computing? What is, you know, there are these different models for distributed computing. A lot of the time you're worried about, oh, let me prevent a race condition. Let me synchronize Mm. things. Let me have this... uh, this place where I have a simultaneity surface that I can define and I and I synchronize everything on that. But in fact, for example, physics, one of the really powerful things is that physics has gotten a long way. And there's a lot understood in physics about the case where you're not just saying, I want these simultaneous moments in time throughout the universe. There's a lot understood in general relativity and things like that, about how to deal with these more complicated simultaneity surfaces and so on. And so think you can import all of that into distributed computing. And so you can start thinking about what is it like to, you know, program in different reference frames uh, where you have different assumptions about, what's, about what the simultaneity actually is. What is, you know, something like a race condition is basically a story of curvature in sort of the space-time of the program. It's a story of you go different ways. It's like in, in you know, when you on a, on a curved surface, you go... You know, two, two sides of a rectangle Then you go the other two sides mm. and, and the thing doesn't close when the surface is closed, when the surface is curved. And so it's the same kind of story of you don't end up in the same condition if you go those different different sides of the path. It, it actually turns out to be the same thing as leads to the uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics. Um, so there, the, the main thing that I think is, is interesting there and it's as yet not properly worked out is the importing of powerful ideas from physics into computation by virtue of the fact that we now seem to be able to tell that physics actually works computationally. It wouldn't make sense Mm -hmm. to say, let's use physics to understand computation. Well, it might make a little bit of sense, but it makes a lot more sense if we can say that's actually how physics works. And so all these things that we know about in physics have to have analogs in computation. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I'm excited about right now is that these all these different fields whether it's economics or immunology or linguistics that i suspect can be modeled with multi-computational models we don't have a good language to talk about those in because we haven't done the language design effectively that lets you know language design as far as i'm concerned is the bridge between what is computationally possible Mm. and what us humans understand you know you can invent something like combinators that's wonderful computationally, but incomprehensible to us humans. And the art of language design has to do with coming up with concepts that humans can actually understand that make strong use of the actual possibilities of computation. So, you know, the thing that I think is, is the, uh, uh, the one of my current areas of, of excitement is um, this idea of sort of Doing the language design for multi-computation, understanding what are the core things. You know, in functional programming, we've invented a certain set of primitives that are very useful. And, and gradually over time, I mean, the thing that's been remarkable to me is that you know, I might have thought I've you know, as we built this kind of tower over the last 40 years of what's now Wolfram Language, uh, you know, I gradually understand more as we as we build more raw capabilities, then we deploy them in lots of application areas, then we realize oh, there's this other thing that we can combine together and see this new kind of platform, theoretical platform to build. And and that's been going on for a long time. And and the latest one of these, I mean, you know, this physics project is basically purely enabled by what we have in Wolfram Language and the capability. You know, it's a funny thing because this project is a mixture of kind of wild theoretical uh, sort of jumps together with actual, let's run it on a computer and see what happens. And that's a super powerful uh, kind of combination that really isn't very common; hasn't really existed much before. Um, and that's what's enabled this physics project. And now, now we're able to kind of come back and use the ideas from that to um, uh, to uh, to apply them. I hope to uh, sort of a another level of design for distributed computing.
0: I was wondering if um, you have a favorite paper, um, so s- something that. Generated in you a haha moment uh, for you at some point in time, and uh, maybe what makes uh, a paper a great paper?
2: You know, for me, I, I read all kinds of stuff. Um, I, I think for me, the things that end up with the big, biggest aha moments are things that kind of uh, are plucked from the, in the sense of the computational world directly. I mean, The the human interpretation of them is great, and and I've certainly seen lots of interesting things there. But the thing that, for me, is much more potent is you do a computational experiment, and you see something, and then you... thats That, for me, has been many, many, many times the sort of big aha moment. And the challenge is always, like, what did you just see? You saw something you didn't expect. What does it mean? And uh, that... that, um, I'm I'm trying to think what... um, uh, yeah, I've, I've had a great many of those moments, and um, uh, they're usually, it's kind of just me and the computational animals. It's not, um, <laughs> not a lot of other uh, wranglers in between. Um, that's, that's my most common experience. I think that, um, you know, I will say that in, in terms of papers, the thing that um, uh, I've been sort of waiting to have happen, and it has happened a bit through our technology stack over the years, is the, the you know the computational essay as paper, where you are representing what you're doing not just in words and math formulas and things, but also in actual you know code that is expected to be read, and that's something we very much emphasized in Wolfram Language, the idea of having a computational language that is sort of a, a communicator of content as well as being something that is for the computer to run, something for the humans to read, you know. The, the big thing that happened, I don't know, 400 years ago or something with mathematical notation was people had a streamlined way to represent math and communicate it to other people. I, I kind of view one of the objectives of our computational language as having something not just for the human-to-computer translation, but for the human-to-human translation, so to speak. And that's uh, that's a thing that's slowly happening, but it's um, – uh, and I – you know, I think it's uh, and it has the great advantage that not only can the humans read it, also the computers can read it, and also there are no hidden footnotes. Like there's a piece of computational language in the paper, and it's like it's that's what it means. Like I was just reading a paper a couple of days ago. Somebody sent me was a nice paper, and I, they had some definition, and um, the I was like, what the heck does this mean? I, I don't understand what this means. And so eventually I, I write the one line of code that is what this definition means. And I understand what's going on now. To be fair to the author of this paper, if I had looked at the end of the paper, there's a nice piece of orphan language code, a bit more complicated than the one that I came up with, that is an implementation. So it was mm-hmm. sort of my incompetence of reading that um, that led me to that. But it's still, you know, I think that the, the the in the true sort of future of the computational essay type paper, it's kind of... The computation, the, the computational language, is part of the expository story, and that's something people, uh, you know, it, it's some um, the idea of having math as part of the expository story. That's about 400 years old. Um, we're not yet at the point where we routinely have sort of computational language as part of that, and it, it's. So um, I'm not. I'm not giving you. You know, I, I'm a. It's funny because it's one of these cases where, in a sense, I read so much that. It's hard for me to say. This is the um, uh, this is the one thing that um, uh, I'm trying to think of things I've um, maybe a classic. Uh, no, I really, I really, I I can't I can't claim that that's as I say. It's mostly just uh, uh, you know rather than human sourced ideas, it's computational universe sourced ideas, uh, kind of raw without the intermediary of of the. The human wranglers. That's my that's my favorite source of aha moments.
1: That definitely works for us as well, because <laughs> I think it's probably closer to what we do um, in practice. Um, but I'm just thinking about yeah, just kind of thinking about the practice of programming and thinking about closure as well. And one of the motivational things for closure was like recognition of um, how software complexity is becoming a big big problem in general in developing systems that can be understood and so on, um, which I think relates to what you were saying. And and also, um, and also with the idea of um, computational language and bringing all those different domains into the language, I was wondering what was what's your, what's your approach to taming complexity, and kind of dealing with, the, you know, software um, right. software design challenges, software as a practice, kind of like how to deal with this.
2: Right, I mean, I think the thing to understand is what is the role of the language designer? Mm. You know, that, that's a, for me, the role of a computational language designer is a little bit different from the role of a programming language designer. But what I see it as being is, imagine all the computations people might want to do. What repeated lumps of computational work do those contain? Okay, mm. once we know a repeated lump, let's give it a name, design it in the best possible way so that it can fit into all those other lumps of computation that we've defined. So as far as I'm concerned, the, you know, the first step is to identify where are those pieces that we can standardize, so to speak, as lumps of computational work. Now you might say it's hopeless, it's just too big. There's too many different lumps mm-hmm. of, of, of stuff that you might have to standardize. I don't think that's true. That's the surprise, in a sense, for the possibility of building a full-scale computational language. It was also the surprise when we built Wolfram Alpha. People said, you know, I was like, let's build a general question-answering system that knows all these things about the world. It's like, how can you do that? The world is too big. Well, it isn't, actually. There's a, you know, there's there's a certain set of domains. There's all kinds of things. We humans actually there's a lot about the world that we humans actually don't care about, at least in the current state of, you know, a 21st century human doesn't care about the detailed configuration of molecules in the gas in this room. That's just something irrelevant to us. Maybe a 23rd century you know, descendant will care about that, but we don't care about that right now. And so this question of what what do humans care about? What is it that you need to capture uh, and, and have a computational representation of? Now, the thing to me, that's a very important activity is, is language design. And I know in Clojure, lots of effort has been put into that. I've certainly put lots of effort into that in our computational language. In a sense, we've signed up for a much bigger, uh, longer road of computational design, of language design, because we're trying to actually put all this stuff about the world into the language rather than building the things you need to build software and build sort of structure of software in the language, so to speak. But for me, this activity of language design, it's, well, it's it's the most intellectually difficult thing that I know how to do, and I've worked on lots of areas that people often think are intellectually difficult. But I would say language design is is the most concentrated kind of intellectual activity. Um, because what is it? It's about understanding in the most clear, essential, primitive way, what how something works. To be able to pr- represent that, in a language which is as flexible as possible, and once you build a big language like ours is, to be able to understand how you build pieces that can fit in with pieces that already exist, and that's um, you know that's a, that's a big kind of uh, you know you have to, as I say, I think we were very lucky in a sense with symbolic expressions and transformation rules on symbolic expressions because that does turn out to be a tremendously general framework for thinking about lots of kinds of things, and uh, you know it, it's. But, but that's, um, so, you know, first step I would say is get the right lumps, get the right primitives in your computational language, and pick ones that in a sense reduce the complexity of what has to be sort of custom built for every particular thing that humans want to mm-hmm. do. And you're using the hack, using two hacks to achieve this, okay? Hack number one, there's a limit to what humans care about. Hack number two, humans have already developed a very socialized mechanism for representing things that they care about which is human language and so in wolfen language what we're doing effectively is to leverage what people know about human language when we define a lump of computation a big thing that we care about is what should we call it what name should that function have and that name has a tremendous effect on how people think about it just as the way that words uh, you know exist in human languages have a tremendous effect and so That's something where that's kind of, you know, the hack is we get to leverage human language. We get to leverage the understanding that people have from human language about things and use that as a kind of an on-ramp to be able to understand these kind of computational concepts. And so when we end up, you know, occasionally we end up with ideas like, for example, some of these things in multi-computation. These are ideas that have no name. There is no word for them it 's like you 're in the middle of a machine learning pipeline, and your neural net has just discovered some feature, and there is no human word for that feature, even though the neural net is really sure that 's an incredibly important thing and So I think in language design, you know an example of an issue is we get to invent some number of words, some number of things which are new concepts that really hadn 't existed before, and we expect people to learn them. you know Ken Iverson with APL, for example, made the mistake of inventing too many sort of, well, particularly the notational mistake of too many kind of notations, even though that was a very brilliantly designed language, it was, Mm -hmm. you know, there was just too much that people had to, uh, you know, had to engage with all at the same time. And and that's Mm -hmm. one of the challenges in language design. And for example, one of the things that's interesting to me is because we've been doing this language design for a long time, and we have people who've been using our technology for a third of a century now, there is an interesting Way in which we can evolve the language building on things that people have understood because they just used it for 25 years. And uh, uh, without that, they would not be able to take the next step. They wouldn't understand how this next thing works. And it's the same thing as when we use words in human language, we get used to what they mean because we use them a whole bunch and they fit into the whole context of of how we think about things. I think it's the same thing in, in computational language. But, you know, this. To me, this art of language design, I, I don't think anybody really pays attention to that. I mean, it's one of these things where I don't think anybody, you know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a thing that people kind of write the analog or literary criticism works about. It should be. Mm-hmm. It's tremendously important. Mm-hmm. I mean, when people talk about human languages, you know, there's this kind of Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that says, you know, the way you think about things is determined by the language that you use to talk about things. It's arguable how true that is for human language, but I'm sure it's true for programming languages and computational language. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that it's true, and I'm sure you guys see that with Clojure, that um, there are concepts that are sort of, you know, uh, readily available in Clojure that um, are, you know, that because they're there and because people wrap their brains around them there, then they think in terms of those ideas. You know, I I know the the way that, you know, in in writing Wolfen language and watching other people write Wolfen language, there comes a moment where you start typing before you could verbalize what you're doing. And that's Mm -hmm. what it means to be a fluent writer of the language. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, and that becomes your way of thinking, so to speak. And so, in a sense, language designers have a a big responsibility because we determine how people think. And that's, you know, more so... Than, um, uh, I mean it's it's a it's so you know this is language design is is a very difficult activity and an activity that has huge leverage I mean people who know what I do and and um, uh, you know who know me for doing physics or mathematics or whatever else they say you know why are you spending all your time doing software developments and all this kind of stuff, you know, you know all this stuff about all these kind of fundamental things about science and so on. You know, what's the point of doing all the software development? And I point out to them and I say, you know, isn't there, you know, isn't it more important to be doing whatever? And I point out, you know, this, things like language design, this is determining how people think. It's the, it's a one critical pivot point, actually, for determining something which is, you know, has tremendous leverage in, in the world. I mean, I know you know with mathematical and language you know there are endless discoveries inventions have been made in science and other areas where i'm sure if you trace through how those were made i mean we know they used our technology but i suspect they used the ideas of our technology as well as the practicality of the technology that is conceptualizing those things relied on the language so to speak and uh, although that's a and you know i think it's it's one of these things where where this is a It's a tremendously important, if difficult, intellectual area, but it's one that people never discuss. You know, as a language designer, I would say one of the features of being a language designer that's rather thankless is the only time you ever hear from people is whether you made when you made a mistake, Mm -hmm. Um, when something when people are always you know bashing themselves against some issue. When I designed SMP, there were a number of things I did where. You know, wait five years, wait for the system to have lots of users, go read the training manuals and things. And you realize, uh, you know, in reading the training manuals, people really got confused by this point. That was a mistake in the language design. That's a place where you hear from people. When you got it right, it's just like, well, uh, I didn't even think about why it did that. It just did the right thing. You know, it's um, that was, of course, that was that generalization. One of the things I've I found fun is, is, uh, uh, seeing kids learn our language. Um, and, uh, you know, what's, what's really fun there, and I've, you know, I've been at the front lines doing this a bit myself, is it's, it's really amusing because kids will take, you know, the principles of a language and they will extrapolate them. And they'll say, why isn't it the case that this or this or this generalizes in this way? And, of course, I'm in the sort of unique position of actually knowing the answer to that and say, well, you can't generalize that because it runs into this issue and runs into that issue and so on. And so, you know, this is one of the things in language design. There's a lot of judgment points. You know, I think one of my statements is the only evaluator for a language that has no weird features is the evaluator which does nothing, which is not very useful. Um, (laughs) There's always something where you have to worry about, well, what happens if this variable does this and this and this? And the, the question is, like I was mentioning, the X equals X plus one problem, you kind of move around the place where there's trouble. And the trick is it's an art to move that around in such a way that it doesn't bite the people who are going to use it and so on. But I think that um, it's, it's, it's one of these things with language design that you end up with, you know, you have all these trade-offs and judgment calls that you have to make. And I think that the, you know, one of the things over, over the years, I've, you know, I've, I've done a lot of this and um, it's, uh, I mean, I, I consider myself quite good at it at this point, And, you know, when somebody will show me a design, I can like, you know, I'm I'm rather probably rather terrifying to to many people. And when I look at other kind of software systems and things, that's probably a case where it's like I can kind of very easily, you know, tell this is going to be a corner case that's going to fail. This is going to be a a thing that's going to get weird and people aren't going to understand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, one of the things you you may know that I've done, which is some uh, both fun and I think interesting is we've live streamed a lot of the design reviews we've had yes, for yeah. Wolfram Language over the last uh, what it three or four years now. And it's great because we have kind of instant feedback from a lot of sophisticated users, quite often suggestions that people make. It's kind of like having a bigger development team, so to speak, because we get um, <laughs> lots, of, yeah. lots of great suggestions. Plus also, to me, it's interesting when it's clear that people on the live stream don't understand what on earth we're talking about. That's a... Yeah that's also a very useful signal because it kind of tells us something about what's understandable and what's not. Since the goal of a a language is to have something that is understandable, we could say it's a brilliant language. You know, it's all combinators, so to speak. Unfortunately, no human can use it. I mean, we were having a discussion, actually, talking of language design. We were having a discussion about the way that we represent symbolic entities that represent Mm -hmm. real world kinds of things. And there's kind of the issue of, uh, you know, when is a cat a cat? so to speak, when is it, you know, is it, uh, you know, is it, is a, what is the boundary of what's called this kind of entity? When is, how do you, how do you do those kinds of things? And people on our live stream are sort of commenting on, well, can't you just represent it ultimately in terms of, they know too much about our physics theory, things like the atoms of space. And it's like, it's mm-hmm. not useful to represent a cat in terms of the atoms of space. Um, you know, in the end, what we want is the human level representation of a cat and, oh, yeah. and that's, and so, you know, the, the, uh, that live stream had the amusing feature that I ended up having to explain look, our users are 21st century humans for the time being. So the fact that there is an alternative representation of these entities that might be useful to a dolphin, an alien, whatever else, is not interesting. <laughs> you know, what we're doing is designing something for 21st century humans, at least for now. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's an interesting feature because the thing I've learned from studying the sort of raw computational universe is there's incredible things that happen in the computational universe. You write down a random program. It can do all kinds of incredible things. Most of those things aren't things that we humans care about yet, may never care about. They're things nature uses, but they're not things that we humans necessarily engage with. And so that's, that's this fascinating art of language design is to, it's, it's sort of the encapsulation of what do humans care about. And, and I suppose the, in the physics project, one of the things that that kind of highlights is a place where we've got a sort of three-way story going on between us humans, computers, and the physical world. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, how do we build a way of representing the physical world that we humans can kind of understand through the intermediary of computers, so to speak? So it's kind of a, a place where it isn't just us and the computational universe. It's kind of us, the physical universe, and and the computational universe. But I think you know this this activity of language design is a is a an underappreciated kind of uh, sort of critical intellectual thing of our times.
1: Why do you think why do why, why do you think that that is the case? Why why is it not appreciated more? Do you um, have a theory about this
2: because or? well. It's not a theoretical kind of thing. It's like writing a novel, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, you know, the the activity of, or or like, you know, painting or something like that. It's an artistic activity, so to speak, at some level. It's not. Um, now there are definitely principles, just as there are for you know for writing literature, for doing art. There are definitely principles. I've thought about codifying those more. We, you know, we, we they're actually not even easy to codify. I mean, and, and to me, you know, those are the things that I've kind of accumulated. This is, these are types of issues. This is how, I don't know, you know, uh, when you think you have an incompatibility, you kind of make a, you kind of build out the way you want it. And then you make the bridge that goes back to the the previous thing. And it turns out that's easier to do than you expect, you know, all these kinds of little sort of little mm-hmm. principles, but, but, and also there's things like, you know, when you provide a function, you know, don't have the minimal case be really complicated because users will never understand it, um, those kinds of things. There are a lot of, lot mm-hmm. of details like that. But, but you know, I, I think, um, you know, language design is not a heroic activity in the current world. Mm. You know, there are things where, uh, you know, people don't, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, um the, the fact that a thing that I've spent a lot of my life doing isn't a heroic activity is, you know, so what? <laughs> I'm, that's not really a... Um, but the, I think the thing that... Um, it's not probably the... Well, it's probably the case that a lot of the principles of language design could be used by people writing individual programs themselves, and that would be very useful to them. And, and certainly we try, in things people write in Wolfram language, You know, we try to provide as much scaffolding as we can to help people to do sort of follow the principles that we've discovered for good language design. But there's more that could definitely be understood understood by people in general along those lines. I mean, I I think, you know, it's a funny thing because if you look at history, there are different activities that become heroic at different times. Like, for example, being a tech entrepreneur, when I started doing that, that was not a heroic activity. Um, it became heroic. It may be becoming less heroic now, but, but it's, it's gone through its, its period of, uh, of high heroism for a while. You know, being a physicist, when I started doing that, that was a very heroic activity. It became less so over time. Um, it's, uh, uh, you, know, in, um, uh, you know, these things go up and down. You know, it, it's, I think that, um, and I think in terms of, uh, I think the other thing is there's very little meta commentary on language design. Mm -hmm. You know, people say, I use this language, I use that language, I like this feature, I like that feature. But, uh, you know, I have not, like, for example, in our language in the last third of a century, right, I don't know of people who have done sort of, there's a lot to study in how the design works and how the design was done and so on. And I don't know anybody who's done that.
1: I think closure is a really good case study here, I would say, because um, you're saying it's underappreciated, and I definitely agree, and there should be much more information about this. And the fact that there isn't, I think, points to how complex it is and how you know poorly understood it is. But in case of closure, I think that there's going to be a good percentage of um, people writing closure nowadays that came to the language because of the talks um, about language design and um language philosophy or whatever you want to call it um richie gave initially like over 10 years ago um I think a lot of people really appreciated the fact that he was you know sharing this difficult art of uh, of language design and um a lot of people I I, I know um, really came to closure. that was the thing that convinced them eventually to actually write closure, even, even when it was a very young language.
2: Oh, it's a, a good case. I mean, I think that uh, in, um, you know, one of the things in, in our world of Wolfram language and so on, one of the things that is perhaps disappointing to me is that I think ultimately, intellectually, the most interesting aspects of the language have to do with its design and have to mm-hmm. do with the way that it tries to represent the world computationally. And that is not the way most people come to it. Most people come to it very pragmatically, you know, solving problems, you know, doing technical things, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that that is a, uh, for us, that's a sort of deeply underappreciated feature. And maybe we're the victims of, of everything else we've built, because, you know, it's, it's not a, a, you know, language design, is the thing that makes all of that possible, but it's not the sort of, you know, there are other selling points, so to speak, that are what pull people in first. I I think the language design is is the most intellectually interesting part, Um, but that's, um, uh, you know, and I I think um, uh, in... um, You're asking, uh, I was going to say something about um, sort of people studying language design. you know, there have been attempts to sort of make a mathematical theory of language design, like denotational semantics is one such attempt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember many years ago, this is early 1980s, talking to Dana Scott, who was one of the originators of that, yeah. um, and, uh, uh, you know, I was saying, what is denotational semantics? This is a the theory of programming languages. Okay, well, and, you know, it has this, all these ideas about how functions pass their arguments, etc., etc., etc. So I showed him SNP. And I said, you know, in your call by value, call by reference, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What is this? You know, because it has its transformation rules on symbolic expressions. A function f of x is just f of x blank, where blank stands for any expression. And that f of x blank is transformed into whatever the body is supposed to be. So it's a, a and looks at it and says, well, that's not covered by our theory. So it's, it's, um, at, um, uh, which is kind of interesting because, in a sense, this idea of symbolic tra- transformation rules for symbolic expressions is actually the earliest form. That was what uh, combinators, post-production systems, these kinds of things. That was what they used. Lambda calculus is the real, you know, is the is the earliest place where the whole variable passing through variables and so on started up. Um, and I think that, um, uh, but but yeah. So I mean there have been efforts like that which I don't think have been terribly, terribly fruitful. I think the real, because that's not an artistic thought thinking about it, that's a mathematical thinking about it. I don't think that's really the point. The point of language design is this effort to to make uh, sort of, you know, make human these computational things. Now, you know, in in the area of uh, user interface design, the whole user experience concept uh, sort of arose and that's been a, you know, that's been a very fruitful area. I think it's a much simpler case. I mean, it's a case, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if you've got, if you're picking between, you know, five things, use a menu, and that's kind of uh, UX territory. If you have, you know, if you've got a little bit more complexity, you can use a dialogue box. If you've really got to specify something that has, is sort of really free range and really able to be built in many layers, you've got to use a language. And that's, that's a different level of, uh, of kind of um, thinking about the design process much further away from, you know, when people do graphic design, for example, that's a very much right there, here's the thing kind of uh, form of design. Language design is more difficult than that because it's not just here's the thing. It's like, you know, I, I make it in Photoshop and that's my picture. It's, I've got to have something where all the cogs can can be not just turned together, but where you have this whole box of cogs and you can fit these different cogs in, in an, a, you know, an infinite number of different ways and have all those pieces fit together. But yeah, it's, wow. it's a, you know, in a, in a, I think in um, um, uh, it will be interesting to see. One day, language design will become an area where people say, oh, wow, this is, a, you know, this is a really important thing and uh, it's a really interesting art, but I don't think that's quite happened yet.
0: No, um, I'm, I'm pretty resonating with you in this uh, with this uh, topic about language design, and and uh, also with uh, um, what Pavel was saying uh, like a second ago. That enclosure, uh, I think we are lucky uh, to have uh, probably a lot of thinking that has been introduced into the language in terms of interface simplicity, language design, and a lot of compromise. Um, A lot to decompress i think uh in in what you're saying there and uh, think about and maybe um we'll like gradually go toward the end of the interview i think with with this um a nice question maybe that i'd like to ask to decompress uh the the three of us is what do you do to like unwind and for fun
2: (laughs) you know every time I, i have a hobby it turns into what i do for a living Uh Um, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to get to do things that I like to do. So I'm, I'm a, uh, uh, from the outside world's point of view, I might be a work all the time kind of person. I mean, I also happen to be somebody who's interested in people. So I know a lot of people, um, and, uh, uh, I sort of enjoy people too, but I'm afraid I probably enjoy people in a, in a very content oriented way, so to speak. (laughs) Um, the, uh. No, I, I, at any given time, you can ask, "What are my hobbies right now?" You know, there was a time when I used to do science for a living, and I used to do technology development as a hobby, and then then I do technology development for a living, and and uh, run companies and things, which I did as a hobby, so to speak. Then I do that for a living, kind of thing. And uh, I, um, I guess I've never really written books and things for a living, but I've written a lot of lot of stuff, and I do I do lots of writing, and I find that that uh, is um, is, a, is an activity that um, is uh, uh, for me very useful because it's the way that I kind of really understand things is can I actually honestly explain this in such and such a way? A new hobby, I've, I've got a couple of new hobbies. So one new hobby that was pandemic induced was I decided all these kids are out of school, let me see if I can provide some useful educational content. So I started doing live streamed Q and A's about science and technology for, for kids and others, so to speak. And that's been really fun. And what's interesting about it is, I can tell over the last year and a half, I have become a measurably better explainer of things, particularly mm-hmm. in real time. And uh, uh, that's so that's been that's been very interesting. And I, I've um, I've I've done a fair amount with sort of education with kids and so on. Um, I think as my own kids get, have gotten older, it uh, gives me kind of the um, uh, well, they're happy for me to deal with kids other than them. So they, they think. Um, uh, that's a that's a good outlet, so to speak. Um, but um, I think that the uh, um, in uh, so you know those are those are a couple of hobbies. Another hobby that I've had is um, history of science and technology. I've done a fair bit. Again, people would see that as being not a totally convincing hobby because I've written a whole bunch of stuff that people think is is you know fairly fairly serious, so to speak, about about uh, history. And I particularly I find sort of uh, sort of historical biography quite interesting, and um, I, I'm sort of interested in how people, how people figure things out and how they miss things. And I try to learn from the things which sort of, in retrospect, seem obvious, but definitely weren't obvious at the time. And I also try to learn from things like things people understood were important and ones they didn't. Like, you know, back to Alan Turing, for example, he didn't really understand you know, Turing machines, you know, they were one of a bunch of models of computation. That gradually sort of the fact that they were it, they were how the universe might work, was not something he understood. And um, in fact, when he went to late in his life, when he was studying biology, he was like, well, you know, I'm doing biology. So I should be using kind of physics like methods. Let me write down a partial differential equation, not use a Turing machine. So, you know, it was an example of something where um, and a thing that you know, I think about quite a bit, is for Alan Turing, the, you know, how would computers be used? He had ideas about how computers would be used, but how they actually got to be used is is fairly different. I mean, you know, word processors weren't a thing that, or even databases weren't really a thing that seemed like that was going to be an application of those ideas. And so one thing I find interesting to understand from history is, you know, when we look at today, like, like for example, one, one very simple sort of uh, elementary thing from history, I remember looking at um, visiting uh, Gottfried Leibniz's archive, where Leibniz in the late 1600s had built a brass mechanical calculator type thing. And I realized that was basically the only computer Leibniz had ever seen. It wasn't really a computer in our modern sense, but it was a, it was a close approximation. In today's world, we've got billions of them. I realized what will people think in the future just as I think, oh my gosh, that was the only computer Leibniz ever saw. What will people think in the future about today's world? And they'll, they'll say, I think, you know, uh, how can you, you know, you just had these computers, you just had a few discrete computers. In, in the world today, everything is made of computers from the molecules up. And how could you ever think that there were just computers, discrete computers? It's just, look, you know, there are no materials like plastic or something. are mm-hmm. just dumb molecules. Everything is made of computers, and that will mm-hmm. be obvious. And so the question is, it's kind of an interesting thing from history to try to understand what was, what was not obvious then that is obvious now. So, okay, my, my most recent hobbies. What are my most recent hobbies? The, um, my most recent hobby, specific hobby, is learning the history of philosophy um, because mm-hmm. I've kind of realized that a lot of things we've done in the physics project relate to people keep on saying that sounds just like what Immanuel kant said in you know 17 whatever um and i'm i'm uh, like i don't know what Immanuel kant said so i've been been trying to learn that um and uh actually my my mother was a philosophy professor and so i i was sort of exposed to a bunch of these things in philosophy when i was a young kid i always used to say if there's one thing i'll never do when i'm grown up it's be a philosopher (laughs) <laughs> and so now we run you know fifty something years later, and uh, you know i'm I'm reading all these books about the history of philosophy, but that's a that's a current hobby and I, I think um uh, you know these things um okay what else it's probably one I typically watch watch one movie per week my wife oh. and I typically watch one movie per week and, that sounds uh,
0: like an like a hobby or yeah, that's a hobby. I never watch any
2: television, but I I, I watch and and it's kind of at, at times when the pickings are slim, you're really watching some quite uh, um, you know. It's kind of definitely a way to relate to you know the general world as it is, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, uh, it um, it's something. Um, uh, yes, that, that that that's a. Uh, I suppose that, yeah. Okay, that, that that that's probably the real answer. That's only a couple of hours a week, so I'm not sure that that's a, that's a full... Most of the rest of the time I, I, I do things that, um, uh, that I like to do and I, I gradually, you know, I'm sure um, the things that... Um, uh, I'm not sure. I think as one of the things that's sort of a trend in the world is people doing more things that they do kind of as hobbies and I'm definitely, definitely somebody who has, quote, serious hobbies, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, that, you know, and, and when, when you're writing some piece of historical biography it's a you know one feature of historical biography is in the end it always makes sense if you've done a good job. That is in the mm-hmm. end, you know, people imagine that there are, in the history of inventing things, probably including language design, although I have done rather little historical biography on language design actually, now that I think about it um, the uh, um, but uh, you know, when, when somebody says, how did so-and-so invent this great science idea? And they say, you know, in the history books, it says, oh, an apple fell on their head and they immediately figured it out. That's never how it actually happened. What happens is there's 10 years of building up kind of the contextual, the, the, the sort of conceptual framework around some idea. And then maybe there's some triggering event that causes one to see how it worked. But so in doing historical biography, it's 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 always lots of fun, but but sometimes it's a big kind of like I just I know there's a connection here. I know there's a thread that actually explains how this came to be, and it takes you know it's it's hard work to figure that out. It doesn't feel particularly unwinding hobby, um, you know. It, it's being through a lot of uh, hard to decode manuscripts in weird languages and things like that to try and figure things out, and uh, you know so that's. Uh,
0: I guess we'll take it <laughs> it's very interesting
1: that you're getting into history of philosophy as well i think it's a good even even uh, even around i think those are the closest people maybe that made uh, um, some sort of attempts attempts on language design as well but part of like developing a theory back then was kind of developing the whole sort of uh, vocabulary around this and um, that was what you had to work with. If you didn't have computers to run it on, you, you had to kind of develop something that kind of made sense um, together as a right. theory, right?
2: Well, you know, the idea of linguistic philosophy, that's actually the area my, my mother worked in in the in the mid nineteen hundreds, was that was a, a thing of sort of everything that you talk about is in the framework of a language. I'm not sure that's really mm-hmm. I'm not convinced about that. I think language is just a surface representation of what's going on, so to speak. But there was an earlier period in the 1600s where people tried to invent what they called philosophical languages. Um, That was a period when Latin was kind of going out of circulation as the general language Mm -hmm. of learning. And people were trying, that was when mathematical notation was being invented as a way to kind of make a a global, systematic representation of of, of thinking. And so there are a bunch of efforts by Leibniz and people like John Wilkins and and others to invent these so-called philosophical languages, which Mm -hmm. were kind of pure, in a sense, symbolic languages devoid of human details of, of, of grammar and syntax and so on, that will be a representation. And in a sense, nothing's been done in that area pretty much for mm-hmm. 350 years. And so in our efforts now, you know, in our computational language, and we're sort of generalizing that to this thing I call symbolic discourse language, which is kind of a way of representing more kinds of things in the world and being able to write things like legal contracts, in code and so on, that's, we're going back to basically what was done in the 1600s. And um, yes, that, that's, that's, the, that's a branch though. The thing that's really surprised me, okay, my, my final comments here, because I need to run off and, and we've, been, we've been going on um, the, uh, you know, about what I've sort of kind of learned from the history of philosophy so far, okay? One thing I've learned is in the history of philosophy, people cared a lot more about science and the way the world fundamentally works than I'd ever imagined. I thought philosophy was much more about human affairs, but there's really a lot of philosophy that has been really submerged by science because people say, we don't care about what the philosophers thought about space and time. We've got general relativity, for example. Um, That's that's one thing. There's a lot more thinking about those kinds of things. Um, Another thing is that there have often been dichotomies, just like there was between the discrete and the continuous models of light or something like that. And then the truth comes out, so to speak, and it's somewhere in between those two. And what I've realized is that our physics project for many different issues that have become dichotomies in philosophy, our physics project delivers something in between them that is more bizarre, quite unexpected, but has a foot in each side of the dichotomy. So that's been quite an interesting thing. Another thing that's been an interesting thing is that a lot of the global questions that we're asking were asked by theologians at a time when theology was kind of the dominant sort of uh, origin of thinking about philosophy. And, in fact, lots of the things that are very relevant to the physics project were very carefully teased out. So the logical consequences were carefully teased out by theologians. Um, And, you know, sometimes, uh, you you know, there's God is in the middle of it but that's not the main point, so to speak. The main point is a, a chain of logical inference, so to speak, that uh, really was was not what science has ever chosen to address. It's about things about how we perceive the world, how the world is made based on our perceptions, these kinds of things. And it's been a surprise to me the extent to which the things that we're now able to really talk about scientifically. And, and what's really fun and bizarre is that, you know, there are these things we talk about, like concepts about computational irreducibility and its relationship to free will and so on, how that all works. And then, like, it all sounds very vague and philosophical, so to speak, but then you just run a program and you can see what it does. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer, you know, it's kind of like, first it was philosophy and then it's code. Um, And uh, that provides this really interesting kind of, um, uh, of, uh, you know, Perspective on on things which have been essentially philosophical questions, and so that that um, uh, I'm I'm not finished with my efforts to sort of wrap my arms around the history of philosophy, and it's you know it's it's a very difficult kind of history for me because you know I've done a lot of as I say history of science and technology and so on, and there it's kind of a much more who what when where you know kind of thing, Mm -hmm. whereas with philosophy it's like what did Kant say about the way that we perceive the universe. Well, he wrote hundreds of pages of you know of German that's been translated, and it's like, and he said maybe he even changed his mind a few times. He mm-hmm. wasn't writing computational language code that I can just run. He was writing you know long German sentences that have a lot of context that is hard to understand. So it's a it's a difficult, and I'm I'm not quite sure as I as I try and write things about it. It's a bit of a challenge to see. You know, I think the best I can say is based on what I understood that Kant had to say, here's how we can connect that to what we now think is going on. But, you know, were I to, you know, have have tea with Immanuel Kant, so to speak, I believe he did have tea every day, actually, um, in a very systematic way. Um, But, um, um, you know, and were to talk to him about this, I might come away with a completely different impression of what I think it was that he said. But so that, that's sort of a, a challenging thing. But it's it's interesting to see, uh, and you know the, the role of language as um, as a kind of you know, okay. I'll, I'll maybe leave you with one the most bizarre thing that I've the most bizarre idea that I um, think uh, my most bizarre idea of the last few months, at least. Um, okay. That uh, um, the um, Okay, so it has to do with this thing I mentioned called the Rulliad, which is this entangled history of all possible computations. Okay, so you imagine you've got Turing machine, not just one Turing machine, you've got all possible Turing machines. They're all running with uh, all possible initial conditions. That generates lots of different states. Many of the states they generate will be the same. So you have this big entangled you know, graph, basically, of all these different things that happen. Okay. That's this thing we call a ruliad. Now, what we think about is when we, if we are observers embedded within that ruliad, we are sampling. We operate with the same stuff that the ruliad has in it. And now the question is, how do we read what's going on in the ruliad? We basically have to take certain reference frames, certain slices of the ruliad to try and understand. You know what what um, uh, sort of to try and decode the Rulliade. And one, one slicing will be the laws of physics as we know them. That's, uh, that's one of the... Um, and, and the fact that sort of a big result is the fact that it takes only very few constraints on the kind of observer you have to say that means you'll get precisely the laws of physics. And so there are many observers kind of like us, but not quite the same as us, that would still conclude the same laws of physics. They're also observers very different from us, kind of the aliens, who might have utterly different laws of physics. But so one of the questions is you can think of this kind of rule space of kind of different perspectives on kind of the rules that govern the universe or the way that you think things work. And so you can even think of different human consciousnesses as living not only in different places in physical space, but in different places in ruleal space. We all have a slightly different set of set of uh, of computational operations that determine how we think about things. So, okay, here comes the most bizarre piece. The most bizarre piece has to do with if you've got these two entities in different places in rural space, and they're trying to communicate with each other, as we've been doing in this this podcast, um, what is the thing that they exchange to communicate? They have to have something which... In this rural space, in this Ruliad, all this complicated stuff is going on. Somehow there has to be a thing that can persist from one entity at one place in real space. It has to be able to propagate to another place in real space and kind of survive making it through this kind of complicated mess of intermediate stuff. It has to be some kind of stable object in this rural space. And it's, it's like if you think about, I don't know, something like uh, a fluid like water, you can have a vortex, that's a kind of stable thing that can go, even though the, the surface of the water is flapping up and down, the vortex can keep going. In physics, the big thing that does that is particles like electrons. They are the big thing which in our models of, of physics have to be, though we don't know all the mechanisms by which this works, they, they have to be kind of the stable, topologically stable objects that propagate through space-time. So the question is: what are the topologically stable objects that propagate through real space? And The the possible answer to that is concepts of the kind that we give words to. That is, those are the things which in the space of all possible computations, those are the things that have the robustness to be able to essentially propagate from one part of rural space, from one consciousness with one set of, of principles by which it operates to another one. So in a sense, this brings us back. This is the most bizarre. Most I didn't see this one coming. So and it, it uh, you know, it's still a little bit un, un, um, uh, unsettled. But this is kind of a, a a very bizarre, ultimately kind of abstracted concept of what language design kind of is about. It's about finding the elementary particles in rural space. So, and that's about that's about as bizarre and abstract as it gets. I think that's that's the <laughs> Uh, in a sense. That this
1: is getting more and more interesting and exciting, but uh, uh, and we definitely would love to continue uh, with this with this theme. But uh, we understand that you we kept you I, I quite, should, quite I, a long time already. Right. Uh, I mean, this we're is, really this grateful is, for this is fascinating
2: well. stuff. And I, you know, it, it um, uh, I think the whole sort of the meta theory of language design. And as I say, in this bizarre connection that I just, just described, this is ultimately the process of language design somehow meets physics. And I don't understand that yet. Um, and that's, uh, uh, you know, that's, uh, I, I and, and the question, of, in the end, by the way, one of the things that that thing that I just described reveals is something very bizarre, which is we think electron is an electron. There's nothing human about an electron. Well, actually, there is. If you know physics well, you know about the renormalization group, and you know that depending on with sort of what energy you look at an electron, it will have a different effective mass. So actually, an electron isn't just an electron. It depends on how you look at it a bit. But the thing that to realize is people think of particles as being sort of observer-independent kinds of things. But it isn't true, I suspect. And I suspect that this, this fact that, that there are these... If it is the case that you can think of these real particles... They are depending, the reference frames are essentially different languages for describing the universe. And these are sort of features of different reference frames. And so that kind of, that kind of, uh, you might learn from what you know about language design. This would be the most bizarre kind of connection. From what we know about language design, we might learn something about elementary particles and physics. If that happens, that's, that's one of these sort of <laughs> ultimate uh, closures, so to speak, is a word me, you yeah. like. <laughs> we are watching
1: this space we are watching this space definitely right. um, thank, thank you so much yeah. uh, for being with us and we're looking forward to your keynote in december
2: great yeah this was fun thanks That's so great. yeah have a good Many day thanks yeah that was that was great